Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. The following is a presentation of Radio.com Sports. Radio.com Sports presents Big Time Baseball. It's brought to you by the 2019 Mercedes-Benz A-Class. I'm Josh Lewin, along with well-respected and never maligned on Twitter baseball insider, <laughs> John Heyman. That's not true. <laughs> I know. Uh, each week, we'll bring you insight into the top storylines across Major League Baseball, the latest insight with the trade deadline now about a week and a half away, depending on when you're listening to this. But uh, all of our episodes include a chat with some of the best baseball voices around the country. Billy Bean is going to join us. Oakland A's maven Mark Zuckerman, who covers the Washington Nationals from Masson. Uh, Brad Pitt did not play Zuckerman in any movie, of which I'm aware. Big Time Baseball is a part of Radio.com. allows you to listen to your favorite radio stations free of charge anytime, anywhere. Be sure to subscribe to Big Time Baseball on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And check it out on Twitter to follow at RDC Sports. John, let's jump right in. Don't want to keep Billy Bean waiting too long. Uh, Hall of Fame weekend. Your biggest takeaway is huge. Class. Our buddy Jason Starko's in the writer's wing, which is awesome. No one does quirky baseball nuggetry quite like Jason. Six players that you and I have basically covered throughout our careers, which is cool. So what, what did you like the best? Well, absolutely fantastic. Great class. I don't object to any of them. I know some analytics people had some quibbles here and there. But uh, uh, while I only voted for Lee Smith in his last year, I was very happy to see him go in. I certainly did support him, uh, at least in that last year. I didn't vote for Harold Baines, but you know what? The guy had almost 400 home runs, 1,600 RBI, six-time All-Star. We looked at different things back then. We didn't look at on-base percentages much. Certainly got the fame part of it, and I'm happy to see him go in. The other guys, all deserving, obviously. Mariano, unanimous, incredible. I think we'll see Derek Jeter be unanimous. 
uh, next year. In fact, I'm sure of it. I mean, no one, now that the votes are public, no one's going to want to uh, embarrass themselves with such an idiotic vote as, as to not vote for Jeter. So I thought it was a great weekend, uh, great speeches. Uh, I particularly love Edgar Martinez's speech, but they were all fantastic. Brandy Halliday, of course, as well, very touching and uh, beautiful. Edgar Martinez, by the way, 11 for 19, two home runs lifetime against Mariano Rivera, which is quite incredible. Amazing. Right? Amazing. So, uh, incredible. Among, You're right. Among active major leaguers, John, I mean, there's, I, I could give you a list of potential Hall of Famers. I mean, it, it's so early in the process for a lot of these guys. I mean, obviously right now, Verlander looks great. Scherzer looks great. Kershaw looks great. And, and Greinke and, and guys like that. And then you look at like a Felix Hernandez or a Chris Sale and, and wonder what else they've got to still do. Uh, you know, Nolan Arenado obviously is on a a track here and guys like that uh, who else are you looking forward to whether it's 10 years from now or 20 years from now saying yep that guy's a hall of famer there are a lot of interesting cases i mean i said there are only a few guys who really punched their ticket for sure at this point i think justin verlander uh with what he's done the impact he's had uh to me he's a hall of famer if he does nothing more clayton kershaw obviously one of the greatest pitchers of all time i think he is a hall of famer for sure he doesn't have to do anything more I kind of think Miguel Cabrera is a Hall of Famer. He doesn't have to do anything more. Mike Trout only has to play 10 years because that's a requirement. Yeah, he's got to keep breathing and, and everything. Yeah, involved, that's right? about it. You know, once he gets 10 years, that's it. I mean, even if he doesn't have 10 years, he's a Hall of Famer to me. So I think Max Scherzer is a Hall of Famer as well right now. So there's a handful of guys, I would say, Hall of Famers right now. But there are a lot of guys that you mentioned and some others that are building their case. And, you know, there are a lot of great young players in Major League Baseball right now. And many of them could become Hall of Famers. I mean, obviously it's early, but boy, does Bellinger look good. Yelich looks fantastic. Lindor, incredible. So those are very young players, but the guys in the middle, there's a group too that you would say could be Hall of Famers. Chris Sale, uh, Harper, uh, Machado, uh, Votto. Uh, you know, they, they probably need to bulk up their resume a little bit, but uh, how much, I'm not so sure. I, I think Buster Posey is going to make it. I don't think he needs the career numbers. He's an impact guy for three World Series teams. I think he will make it. I, you know, I don't think he's punched his ticket, as I would said with some of those other guys. I, I think Mad Bum is a candidate. I don't hear his name mentioned, but to me, it's about the impact. And I vote for Schilling, so uh, to me, Mad Bum has had that same sort of impact, and uh, he'll have to play a little bit longer, but uh, I think he's en route to the Hall of Fame. Since you brought up Schilling, and I'm not going to have you tweet anything about Schilling, please don't, don't do that today. Uh, but I, I do want to kind of get you to the AL East. You know, the, the Yankees, well, a.k.a. the Savages, they're, they're, <laughs> I love it. Right? they're 38 and 17 at home, okay? So they're taking care of business there. They're 37 and 11 against the AL East, and that checks that box. I mean, those are like the two things you're supposed to be able to do to compete. The Red Sox, for example, have a losing record at home. They're basically about a 500 record at home and about a 500 record against the AL East. So as you look at the difference between those two teams, that really jumps out. The Savages against the, uh, the Boston Barbarians or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> Very nice. Right? But tell me more about the Yankees right now who continue to play basically 650 or 660 ball. What, what are we missing here? Uh, you know, I'm not sure that they're missing anything. They've been fantastic. But as they look at it, they feel like they could use another starting pitcher and probably a reliever or two. The relief pitching has been good. The starting pitching has been good. Uh, a couple of starters, there still have some questions about. Obviously, CeCe just turned 39 the other day. He's getting up there a little bit. 
Jay Happ hasn't been quite as good as they'd hoped after giving him that contract as a free agent, bringing him back. So I, they're definitely looking at the starters, and I think they've got an order pretty well set. They'd love to get Noah Syndergaard. He's their number one guy. Uh, uh, but, you know, the odds of him being traded are very, very slim. The odds of him being traded from the Queens to the Bronx, I, I think, are almost nothing. So uh, that's not likely to occur. But one thing I would like to point out is it's been reported that the Yankees have no untouchables. They're willing to trade any of their prospects. From what I'm hearing, that only goes uh, uh, counts if we're talking about Syndergaard. They're willing to trade any prospect for Syndergaard, uh, not for some of the other play pitchers who are very good pitchers on the board, but they lo- happen to love Syndergaard. He's got two years to go. Uh, that's the guy that, that they most like to get. So uh, I do think the Mets would want an established player like Gleyber Torres, so uh, I don't know that that's going to happen. Uh, in fact, I'd say almost zero chance. Uh, Bauer uh, is the next guy on their list. That's their number two choice. Uh, the, the chances of him being traded are diminishing as the Indians draw closer to the Twins. Uh, but they're, they're listening, and uh, we'll see about that. But I, I think that's their number two guy, and uh, probably the, 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 the first guy with a realistic some chance to be traded to the Yankees. After that, they love Madbum. I think, uh, despite some early thoughts of analytics questions, uh, obviously big October pitcher. He's hot right now, and uh, I, it's another guy. I, I'm not sure he's getting traded now. I think the Giants have uh, really put on a magical run and played themselves back in it. Uh, Ray is another guy they like, and uh, another guy who may or may not be traded. So what may happen, and I think at this point, if you had to say a favorite to go to the Yankees, it might be Stroman because he's going to be traded. He's on a non-contender. He's on a team that's going to market him and try to trade him. And right now the Yankees in Houston look like uh, the two most logical landing spots for uh, Stroman. A couple minutes away from Billy Bean joining us, so let me end this segment, and I'm, I'm cheesing off most of America by keeping this all AL East, just, you know, for this first segment, but uh, with Boston double digits behind the Yankees right now, and there's a lot of finger pointing in Boston, as you know, John, it's like a freaking Dunkin' Donuts, everybody pointing <laughs> here, 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 uh, but, the, 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 you know, the starters through 100 games last year for the Red Sox had a 3.7 ERA, this year through 100 games, it's 4.8. Doesn't it seem like that's the first place to point a finger? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think that's one place. And the other place is they're not getting the same kind of years out of uh, their star everyday players. I mean, J.D. Martinez has been good. He hasn't been as spectacular as he was last year. Mookie Betts has been good, has not been MVP caliber as he was last year. Uh, Benintendi has been average. He really has not been what you would have expected. Uh, maybe a little bit of a sophomore slump, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, they're getting some diminishing returns. Obviously, the bullpen's an issue, too. That has not been good lately. Uh, early on, they were kind of getting by with what they had. But uh, they certainly have a lot of issues and a lot of questions. And right now, it's questionable whether they get in even as a wild card, whether it was the hangover or... Uh, just a regression to the mean or whatever it was, uh, they do not look like a threat in the division at this moment. And I've thought all along that, you know, they have so much talent, they could come back. It could be like the 78 Yankees. They could make a huge comeback. They're the world champion. But uh, right now, I'm kind of thinking, uh, I'm pointing fingers and suggesting uh, their best hope is wild card. And uh, that's about it, I would say. Well, one of the teams they're competing with for that wild card, the Oakland Athletics and Billy Bean is on deck to talk to us about the A's chances and the, the, the AL West overall, as a matter of fact.
Billy Bean, who served as the A's GM, of course, from 98 to 2016 before becoming their executive vice president of baseball operations. Of course, was also a big league outfielder from 1984 to 89, then immortalized in both print form and movie form. But this isn't entertainment tonight. Billy, we want to talk about your ball club on a ferocious tear. Cautiously optimistic. Is that a decent way to put it for you right now? I think that's a term we all learned when we went to GM school. So, uh, but uh, yes, I think it's appropriate here. I think uh, the, I would put the word cautious in there because we still have some some concerns uh, about our pitching depth. Uh, the guys who, who we have right now have done a great job at going back to the offseason. We kind of had to invent a starting rotation. And, uh, and the bullpen has, which was one of our strengths last year, has been a little bit inconsistent and uh, when I say depth, we don't have a, uh, guys in either position that we've, uh, a lot of guys, we have some guys that we certainly could call up, but I, I think we could use some more depth or more options. Uh, and so, therefore, the term cautiously optimistic would, uh, would apply here. <laughs> Very good. Billy, it's John Heyman here. Um, I just wanted to, you've gotten Homer Bailey, you've acquired him. Uh, you know, you've had some pitching injuries to deal with. Where do you stand right now with your rotation and your bullpen? I mean, your your team is playing great. Uh, you're in position to make the playoffs again and surprise a lot of us. But uh, what do you think the next move or two could be? Well, again, hopefully to address the, the pitching depth. I think ideally we would like to get, you know, a starter and at least one more reliever. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, started, it's, it's not a real uh, heavy market for starters right now. There's just not a lot of guys out there that sort of fit. Uh, for us, and uh, but certainly from a bullpen standpoint, we like to lead, at least add one. Uh, and again, one of the things you know, one of the things that you know we knew coming in to the season that if we could kind of stay in contention until about the midway point, we felt good about how the second half would go with our pitching because we had guys like AJ Puck uh, and uh, Sean Benaya returning. And which is still the case, it's just that they've been a little uh, bit delayed, and it may be that we get those guys maybe in August, at the end of August. And the also thing that hurt us, too, at the beginning of the year was losing uh, Jesus Lazardo, probably our, one of our top pitching prospects who we anticipated being in the rotation this time. So, uh, again, the fact that we're here is a testament to, A, the, the players who, who are here doing well, our, our staff as well. But uh, ideally, because of the delay in those guys' return, I think we'd like to, again, we're going to hope to, at minimum, add uh, another reliever, maybe two, and in a perfect world, we get uh, maybe at least one more starter. Billy, as we're recording this, it's funny, the Tampa Bay lineup just came across to me uh, as I'm putting it down in my scorebook, and and I'm noticing it's not Jason Kendall, but they got Travis Darno leading off. And, and he's playing first base. I mean, that's like everything that, that Tampa Bay, for example, would have never thought. You know, here's this guy they didn't even have in the organization, and he's playing a position he's not supposed to be playing because sometimes necessity is the mother of invention, right? And, and I've just seem to, to think that with you guys, that kind of thing, I mean, it's almost every year, if not every month, every week, you've got to do some sort of weird tweak like that. Does that energize you? Does that piss you off? How does that kind of stuff make you feel? Anything that Tampa does, I mean, they're a brilliant group of guys down there. So there's a reason, and there's an analytical reason as to why you're seeing that. I mean, I, you know, in fact, they'll be. Able, I'm sure they can explain it to you uh, as to why you know they're doing that. And if you look back in our history, if you really think about it, going back, I mean, I remember when we uh, we signed Scott Hatterberg and, and whispered in his ear that we we're going to move him to first base, and we didn't want him to tell anybody <laughs> because we didn't want people to think that he was replacing Jason Jambi and. 
And the reason we did it was, you know, there's a lot of information we had that, uh, you know, that he was a very, very good hitter, was a very poor catcher at the time, and that he was going to be a good enough offensive player at the position. Again, that was, it was analytically driven. So, uh, but as far as reinventing ourselves, uh, and I, you know, I would, I'm sure Tampa feels the same way. In some sense, it, you know, uh, it, it does force the creativity because we have so much player churn here um, because of the, the revenues uh, we bring in, as does Tampa Bay. Uh, but I also think it, it, it allows for a very creative environment and allows us just maybe to take some chances and do some things that uh, maybe larger market teams or higher revenue teams wouldn't, wouldn't be able to do. Yeah, Billy, you mentioned uh, they're brilliant in Tampa, and they certainly are. A lot of these teams that are brilliant just kind of copied what you did, uh, as was outlined in the great book Moneyball. Uh, I wanted to ask you, I'm sure you thought the book was pretty good, but how would you review the book, the movie, and did you have any regrets at all uh, about giving away any any secrets? Do you think people picked up on it, or were you able to, uh, it seems like you've you've, uh, were able to adjust, uh, you know, pitchers and and hitters always have to adjust, and it seems like you have adjusted and found some new secrets. Well, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, first of all, zero regrets to me. I mean, to, you know, I mean, Mike Lewis is arguably uh, even, you know, the impact he's had in the nonfiction world uh, even since that book. I mean, he's basically, with every one of his books, has almost changed industries. So I guess it, it's an honor to, you know, for myself and, mm-hmm. and the, the organization to be profiled. At, at, and now as far as giving up any secrets, so the, the short answer, no regrets because it, my life has changed and in great ways because of it. Uh, now, uh, as far as giving away secrets, the interesting thing was was that all the stuff that was in the book was really, it, this was all sort of public information anyways. Uh, and, and, you know, we make no bones about it. What was in the book was we were really just taking the ideas of a Bill James and a Pete Palmer, some of the sort of baseball academics who for years thought that there were some ineffic- inefficiencies in the game that we were valuing some of the, you know, some of the wrong skills and so uh, it was nothing we invented you know what we did was we just we just executed on again the ideas of other people now uh, what i do think it did was i do think it accelerated to some extent the analytics revolution also what accelerated too was the uh the fact that you know not only baseball teams but businesses in general had access to a lot more data but uh, but once the book came out, all of us, I say we were, and I know other teams at that point too, were creating their own proprietary analytics, and uh, and that and again we all that was stuff that we didn't have to give away, and you know and there's other teams that did that, and, and here now, and I think you just about every baseball team has their own proprietary stuff. So uh, so again, I didn't feel like we gave away any secrets because it was all public. At some point, people were going to figure out and do it anyways. It just again we just robbed the ideas of Bill James and put them into play and then once the book came out we were on to again creating our own stuff and, and uh you know we were able to keep that secret for a while and just like other organizations <laughs> and, and, and again that's what most teams are doing now but mm-hmm. no regrets certainly it's, it's been uh, from my standpoint it's, it's changed my life we got a couple more minutes with billy bean and you're in houston your team is in houston right now uh, and as we record this six back in the loss column it's not like it's 16 so you look at Houston, and are they vulnerable in any way? Or speaking of analytics, I mean, here's this team that uh, has figured out a way to make them work uh, for them as well. But uh, they bring up a lot of cool young players. You've done the same thing. Loriano just got named Player of the Week. He's got the highest July batting average going in the major leagues. But uh, what about Houston? What impresses you, and are they vulnerable in any way? It was not, you know, you could make the argument if uh, that you know, there's probably two teams. I think everybody, you know. Uh, 
and again, I'm not to, uh, nothing on anybody else, but I mean, the Dodgers and the Houston, I think most people going into the season, and I think even during the season, are probably the top two teams in baseball. And again, there's the Yankees are, a few other teams are making an argument for that as well. But, and you talk about intelligent. I think one of the things that Houston has done with the analytics that they've revolutionized is they've really applied it to player development. And done a great job in, 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 you know, when you look at a guy like Verlander too, they use the analytics to take a great, a great pitcher with a great career and, and, and make him even greater if that's possible. And, and again, that's a credit to, to Jeff and his entire staff. But going to the team, they're, listen, they're, you know, we've known, we knew probably a year or two before they arrived that they were going to be a force in our division for a long, long time. And they are still clearly the, the class of our decision or division, excuse me, and uh, probably will be for a, a long, long time. So I think the road to the division title is going to go through Houston for a few more years, and that's an earned right that, that they put a lot of, they put some tough years into creating that, and I still think that's the case now. So, listen, the fact that we're at six, six and a half now, if you, you know, if you looked at the standings back in May, uh, you would have thought we were crazy uh, if we thought we were, or we thought we were going to be that close because it was a lot bigger then, and so we still got some time, but it's it's, it's going to be a big challenge because they're a great team, very talented, with a, with a great manager and a great front office over there as well. You, you say it's a big challenge, Billy, and one thing I'll say about your team, incredible second halves. And, you know, I didn't, again, once again, I'm going to look bad because I didn't pick you guys to make the playoffs, but once I saw you were around 500, a little over 500, uh, halfway through the year, I said, you know what, this team is going to make it once again. Uh, when I was asked, and you know, I know you guys have uh, revolutionized the analytics and taken advantage of market inefficiencies. But is there some re- explanation as to why you guys have been so good in the second half? Is there something that you're doing uh, that just allows your team to be even better uh, in the second half as opposed to the first? You know, it's it's why I learned in my second year, John, that in, in this game, if you can. Especially now with the wild card, the second wild card, you know, added and stuff. You've got when you look at uh, the season. What we really want to do is just if we can sort of hang in there, and you get to the midway point. What ends up happening around the midway point is that there's a number of teams that just sort of say, "Hey, you know, we're not in it. We're going to fold our cards and we're out." And just by virtue of kind of just staying in the game, if you again, if you're around 500 around this time of year, there's a lot of those teams that are going in a different direction that you actually get to play in the second half. And so, uh, just by staying in the in the in the game, so to speak, uh, we'll give you a few more wins. And we sort of, and I found out in my second year. I think in '99 uh, we were, uh, I think, 43 and 44, right, right right before the deadline. And it was a year we actually traded Kenny Rogers and actually turned it into. We were able to keep the cash. We traded for uh, traded for a bunch of players: Omar Oliveras, Kevin Apier, and you know, Israel Housing came that year. And from that point on, we ended up, I think we finished the season with 87 wins. And if somebody would have thought, you know, back in July of that year that we could, you know, win 87 games, they would have thought we were crazy. And I sort of realized that, listen, we just, what we did was we sort of willed ourselves to being contenders and just didn't, in some sense, didn't give up from a front office standpoint and from a playing standpoint, realizing that, again, that some of the people on your schedule in the second half may be going in a rebuilding or a younger direction. And there's a lot of wins out there. So, uh, I think that's contributed to some of our second half. So I think the other thing too is we've always had a unique environment here in Oakland. It's uh, it's been, you know, uh, it, it goes back to even when Jason Jambi, Hudson Moldrezito, those eras is that we've always been able to 
you know, develop a pretty good clubhouse culture here. I think a lot of that has to do with the people who are managing the club. Uh, in our case, you know, Bob Melvin is a guy that players like playing for. It's not a real strict environment. Guys are allowed to be themselves, and I think that uh, that lends itself to getting guys getting on runs and a lot of confidence and a lot of people are going to kill me for saying this, but uh, a lot of team chemistry. Uh, so, and, and that's happened not just with this team, but with some of the other teams in the past. And part of it, I think, is the environment that we create. Uh, don't worry, that word is never used. Billy, thank you so much, buddy. Continued success. Go get him. We'll, we'll talk to you again soon. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Yeah, Billy. as well, guys. Uh, thanks again. All right, very cool. Billy Bean has spent that much time with us. Big time baseball. Let's shift over and talk a little Washington Nationals because they're relevant again. Let us shift over to the National League East. We're joined by Mark Zuckerman, who covers the Washington Nationals for Masson. You can follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Zuckerman. That's convenient. A uh, long way from <laughs> 19 and 31 for your guys, Mark. They were dead as a light post around Memorial Day. Now here they are hitting, they're pitching, they're not stinking it up in relief. Can they keep this going? Well, they're trying. I mean, they dug themselves into such a hole that they kind of have to keep this up now uh, the rest of the way. If they play 600 ball the rest of the season, they'd get to 91 wins, and that's going to get them at least into a wild card. So that, given where they were two months ago, that's pretty remarkable that they put themselves uh, in that position. But the schedule is getting a lot tougher, as we just saw against the Braves. They've still got the Dodgers and the Braves coming up at home in the next week. Uh, Max Scherzer is dealing with an injury. Ryan Zimmerman got hurt again last night, and the bullpen is still uh, you know, a question mark on a day-to-day basis. So they're far from in the clear at this point, but um, the fact that they have gotten themselves back to this spot uh, is testament to just you know how talented they are and how they really stuck together uh, when things could have fallen apart a couple months ago. Hey, Mark, John Heyman here. You, you mentioned the bullpen, and it's still got an ERA close to six, so it's uh, remarkable that they are uh, really uh, in, in the playoff hunt with that kind of a bullpen. I know it's been a little bit better at times lately. Where, where do you think they go from here with that pen? I know that they're also they're, they're close, although they won't say what their uh, current payroll is. They're close to that $210 million. We all think they are because they were over last year, and by all rights, you'd think they're around 200 to $205 million. Uh, do they have the flexibility uh, to add some pieces? Uh, what are you hearing uh, along those ways? Yeah, that's the tricky part of this all. They clearly need to upgrade here in the next week or so uh, in their bullpen. The problem, uh, they are, whatever the exact number is, they are close to the luxury tax. And Mike Rizzo, uh, we asked him about it yesterday. He flat out said, again, we're not going over the tax for a third straight year. So that's not a lot of room to work with. On top of that, they've had this long-standing policy for several years now of not trading away top prospects. So if you're not going to take on money and you're not going to give up top prospects, uh, that's limiting your options of what you can do. And on top of all that, you know, so many teams are now kind of in the in that fringes of the race, especially in the National League. There's only so many teams willing to sell at this point. So that, that limits the market as well. Um, so this is a tricky challenge for Rizzo. He's done this almost every summer uh, the last four or five years. He's gone out especially and gotten bullpen pieces, and most of them have worked out well. But this is going to be a particularly tough challenge. I guess the good news of it is they don't need a closer. They have that in Sean Doolittle, um, but they do need somebody they can consistently rely on to get the ball to Doolittle. Fernando Rodney's done a nice job for a 42-year-old, but if they're counting on that, 
to be the guy for them the rest of the way. I think that's a big ask uh, for someone at, at his age, to, you know, to, to consistently get you through the eighth inning. Are you happy, Mark, as we talked to Mark Zuckerman with Masson about the Nationals, that Anthony Rendon seems like finally, nationally, for the Nationals, is getting some acclaim. He had never been an all-star before. Now there's all this talk that he's the primo free agent coming up on the market. You've seen enough of him to know he is an incredible player, but it almost seems like uh, the rest of the world is like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I didn't know that about Rendon. Yeah, I've been writing about him for years since he, since he debuted, and I've you know, we've all around here have known just how good he is. You know, maybe it was because he played in Bryce Harper's shadow for a long time. They had Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, uh, you know, a lot of bigger names. And, and Anthony is not an attention seeker. He really tries to avoid it. Um, and that's fine. That's who he is. It's going to be hard for him to avoid the attention if he gets the free agency this winter. The Nats love him. They would love to resign him. There have been talks on and off with Scott Boris about this. So far, nothing has come through. Uh, it, it, that also kind of leaves them in a little bit of a tough spot right now where you know, a few months ago when it looked like they were out of it and were not going to be in the thick of a race, there were going to be serious questions about whether they would have to try to trade him now by July 31st, the opposite of what they did with Harper last year. Now, obviously, they can't do that. He's a big part of this. He's going to try to help them win this year. But are they going to risk two years in a row losing a premier free agent and not getting anything in return for it? It's a tough spot to be in. Um, but whatever number they've put out so far is not enough for Rendon and Boris. I just have a hard time, just knowing Anthony, I have a hard time believing that he's going to embrace the idea of free agency and everything involved in that. And after seeing what Bryce and Machado and everybody else went through last winter, if I'm Anthony Rendon, I want no part of that. Um, at the same time, he wants a fair deal, and, and at least in his mind, the Nats haven't offered that yet. Yeah, I mean, you know Anthony very well, and he has seemed to stay out of the spotlight and the limelight, and uh, that makes sense that he really wouldn't embrace free agency as Harper did. Let's not forget, though, that while it was a trying period, he, Harper did end up with $330 million, so it ended up okay for him. Uh, I want to ask you about some more uh, key people with the Nationals, and this may seem like a weird question when the team looks like it could be en route to a, another playoff spot, and they've Four times they've been 95 wins or more uh, with Mike Rizzo, and uh, he's done a terrific job from where I sit. But, uh, you know, they've had a rotating uh, system of managers, and, uh, you know, there, there was earlier talk about uh, Davey Martinez's job, and uh, you hear of a little bit of tension maybe, uh, the fact that they haven't gotten past the first round of the playoffs. Uh, where do you think these guys stand, and, and what do they need to do to impress people and get job, keep their job in Davey's case and get an extension in, in Mike's case. Well, we'll start with Davey. And, and look, yeah, there was plenty of heat on him back in May as this thing uh, wasn't looking so good and, and coming apart. But what I also saw with my own eyes and what I heard from everyone else around the clubhouse was that they felt like it was not fair to judge him on this, that look at the roster that he was given, number one, look at the injuries, they had dealt with look at the bullpen they uh, that he was given and the fact that they really were playing hard you know they weren't winning games but they were in every game right down to the end and they thought that was a testament to Davey and I didn't see any kind of clubhouse discord um, there were points there where you could have seen guys pointing fingers at each other certainly at the bullpen and it didn't happen and I really do believe a big reason that they have been able to turn it around is that Davey kept 
that clubhouse together. Um, just look down the road to a couple other NL East teams in Philadelphia and New York for kind of comparable situations. When they faced adversity, you've seen a very different narrative come out of those clubhouses mm-hmm. and, and questions about their leadership. And so um, is Davey the best X's and O's manager? Maybe not. There's still some moves he makes that, that you kind of scratch your head. But I, I don't think anybody can question how well-liked and respected he is uh, within the clubhouse and within the organization. Um, you know, he's still got to get them over the hump. But they've gone through so many managers. They've never had one last more than two and a half years. Um, one of these days they've got to find the guy <laughs> and stick with them and give it, them a chance to have some consistency and continuity. You know, yes. now in Rizzo's case, he has taken more heat this year than he has in the past. Uh, he was responsible for assembling this bullpen that we've been talking about. Um, you know, he also went and, and aggressively went and got Patrick Corbin and outbid the Yankees and the Phillies. That worked out great. Uh, Kurt Suzuki's been a good pickup. Brian Dozier's been a good pickup for them. He refused to trade Soto and Robles, and that's worked out really well for them. So, I mean, there's still, in my mind, there's nobody more responsible for the Nationals uh, over the last decade, what they've become, you know, a consistent winner and contender every year. Mike Rizzo is more responsible than anybody else. So I don't think he's under that kind of pressure, but you're right. Um, the way the Lerner family operates, they just don't give a lot of long-term security to people in the GM and manager's office. Uh, and so it kind of always leaves these questions hanging out there. And, um, you know, uh, a little deeper run in October, maybe that'll help solve that problem. Mark Zuckerman, thank you so much, buddy, and we will catch up with you again. Appreciate all the insight. You guys have a good one. Final segment coming up. We will wrap things up by breaking down the latest in trade insight across Major League Baseball with John. We'll go around the diamond in just a second. Heyman always gets us the very latest information as we creep towards the trade deadline, which remembers July 31st this year. This is a really good time to uh, review this podcast, and I'm quoting now, Awesome that Heyman has his own podcast away from WFAN work. Let's see him dive deep and provide interesting content. Always been a huge fan of John and his way of presenting baseball storylines in a way that caters to both sabermetrician types and the average fan. John, I was impressed your parents know how to subscribe to podcasts. That's, that's very cool. Wow, that shocked me. I can't believe there's somebody out there after reading my tweets. I I... <laughs> oh, you've been, you've, been, nice. you've been buried on some of your tweets the last two two weeks. Don't oh, get me started. Two weeks, last well, uh, ten years. Your entire since your Twitter uh, <laughs> life has been born. Yes, I agree with that. But specifically now, here's a chance to wipe the slate clean. You're not going to cheese anybody off, I don't think, by suggesting that. Oh, for example. Uh, the Giants have some big decisions to make here. And as you and I record this, they've won 14 out of 17, two and a half out of a wild card. This is not what they thought would happen. Everybody figured out they're just going to tear the whole thing down. Are they still going to tear the whole thing down? Mad bum, all the relievers, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, uh, at this point, I would say that they probably are not a seller. Uh, You're right. I thought it was 90% or more that Mad Bum would go and that all those relievers would go, Will Smith and... uh, Dyson and even Melanson, it's a long list of good relievers that they have on that team that certainly have value. Watson, at this point, I think that they're going to hold, and it'd just be very difficult for them to go into that clubhouse and after being on this magical winning streak and tell these players that we're trading Mad Bum and he's gone and this is Bruce Bochy's last year and we're not giving it a run. 
Uh, right now, they're a playoff contender. Uh, shocking as that may be, give Bochi credit. Give them credit for picking up some interesting pieces. But uh, that's where they stand now. Uh, in the long run, maybe that's a negative. Maybe that doesn't work out for them. But uh, for now, we give them credit. And I think Mad Bum is likely to stay uh, as of today. And I know all this stuff is timing. But look, we thought the Rangers would be buyers. Now it looks like they're sellers. We thought the Angels would be The following is a presentation of Radio.com Sports. Radio.com Sports presents Big Time Baseball. It's brought to you by the 2019 Mercedes-Benz A-Class. I'm Josh Lewin, along with well-respected and never maligned on Twitter baseball insider, <laughs> John Heyman. That's not true. <laughs> I know. Uh, each week, we'll bring you insight into the top storylines across Major League Baseball, the latest insight with the trade deadline now about a week and a half away, depending on when you're listening to this. But uh, all of our episodes include a chat with some of the best baseball voices around the country. Billy Bean is going to join us. Oakland A's maven Mark Zuckerman, who covers the Washington Nationals for Masson. Uh, Brad Pitt did not play Zuckerman in any movie of which I'm aware Big Time Baseball is a part of Radio.com. allows you to listen to your favorite radio stations free of charge anytime, anywhere. Be sure to subscribe to Big Time Baseball on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And check it out on Twitter to follow at RDC Sports. John, let's jump right in. Don't want to keep Billy Bean waiting too long. Uh, Hall of Fame weekend, your biggest takeaway is huge class. Our buddy Jason Starko's in the writer's wing, which is awesome. No one does quirky baseball nuggetry quite like Jason. Six players that you and I have basically covered throughout our careers, which is cool. So what, what did you like the best? Well, absolutely fantastic. Great class. I don't object to any of them. I know some analytics people had some quibbles here and there. But uh, uh, while I only voted for Lee Smith in his last year, I was very happy to see him go in. I certainly did support him, uh, at least in that last year. I didn't vote for Harold Baines, but you know what? The guy had almost 400 home runs, 1,600 RBIs, six-time All-Star. We looked at different things back then. We didn't look at on-base percentages much. Certainly got the fame part of it, and I'm happy to see him go in. The other guys, all deserving, obviously. Mariano, unanimous, incredible. I think we'll see Derek Jeter be unanimous uh, next year. In fact, I'm sure of it. I mean, no one, now that the votes are public, no one's going to want to embarrass themselves with such an idiotic vote as as to not vote for Jeter. So I thought it was a great weekend, uh, great speeches. Uh, I particularly love Edgar Martinez's speech, but they were all fantastic. Brandy Halliday, of course, as well very touching and uh, beautiful. Edgar Martinez, by the way, 11 for 19, two home runs lifetime against Mariano Rivera, which is quite incredible. Amazing. Right? Amazing. So, uh, incredible. Among, You're right. Among active major leaguers, John, I mean, there's, I, I could give you a list of potential Hall of Famers. But, I mean, it, it's so early in the process for a lot of these guys. I mean, obviously right now, Verlander looks great. Scherzer looks great. Kershaw looks great. And, and Greinke and, and guys like that. And then you look at like a Felix Hernandez or a Chris Sale and wonder what else they've got to still do. Uh, you know, Nolan Arenado obviously is on a, a track here and guys like that. Uh, who else are you looking forward to, whether it's 10 years from now or 20 years from now, saying, yep, that guy's a Hall of Famer? There are a lot of interesting cases. I mean, I said there are only a few guys who really punched their ticket for sure at this point. I think Justin Verlander, uh, with what he's done, the impact he's had, uh, to me, he's a Hall of Famer if he does nothing more. Clayton Kershaw, obviously one of the greatest pitchers of all time. I think he is a Hall of Famer for sure. He doesn't have to do anything more. I kind of think Miguel Cabrera is a Hall of Famer. He doesn't have to do anything more. Mike Trout, 
I only have to play 10 years because that's a requirement. Yeah, Without that, breathing and, and everything. Yeah, level, that's right. about it. You know, once he gets 10 years, that's it. I mean, even if he doesn't have 10 years, he's a Hall of Famer to me. So I think Max Scherzer's a Hall of Famer as well right now. So there's a handful of guys, I would say, Hall of Famers right now. But there are a lot of guys that you mentioned and some others that are building their case. And, you know, there are a lot of great young players in Major League Baseball right now. And many of them could become Hall of Famers. I mean, obviously it's early, but boy, does Bellinger look good. Yelich looks fantastic. Lindor, incredible. So those are very young players, but the guys in the middle, there's a group too that you would say could be Hall of Famers. Chris Sale, uh, Harper, uh, Machado, uh, Votto. Uh, you know, they, they probably need to bulk up their resume a little bit, but uh, how much, I'm not so sure. I, I think Buster Posey is going to make it. I don't think he needs the career numbers. He's an impact guy for three World Series teams. I think he will make it, uh, and I don't think he's punched his ticket, as I would said with some of those other guys. I, I think Mad Bum is a candidate. I don't hear his name mentioned, but to me, it's about the impact. And I vote for Schilling, so uh, to me, Mad Bum has had that same sort of impact, and uh, he'll have to play a little bit longer, but uh, I think he's en route to the Hall of Fame. Since you brought up Schilling, and I'm not going to have you tweet anything about Schilling, please don't, don't do that today. Uh, but I, I do want to kind of get you to the AL East. You know, the, the Yankees, well, aka the Savages, they're, they're, <laughs> I love it. Right? They're 38 and 17 at home. Okay, so they're taking care of business there. They're 37 and 11 against the AL East, and that checks that box. I mean, those are like the two things you're supposed to be able to do to compete. The Red Sox, for example have a losing record at home, or basically about a 500 record at home, and about a 500 record against the AL East. So as you look at the difference between those two teams, that really jumps out. The Savages against the, um, the Boston Barbarians, or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> Very nice. Right? But tell me more about the Yankees right now, who continue to play basically 650 or 660 ball. What, what are we missing here? Uh, you know, I'm not sure that they're missing anything. They've been fantastic. But as they look at it, they feel like they could use another starting pitcher and probably a reliever or two. The relief pitching has been good. The starting pitching has been good. Uh, a couple of starters, there still have some questions about. Obviously, CC just turned 39 the other day. is getting up there a little bit. Jay Happ hasn't been quite as good as they'd hoped after giving him that contract as a free agent, bringing him back. So I, they're definitely looking at the starters, and I think they've got an order pretty well set. They'd love to get Noah Syndergaard. He's their number one guy. Uh, uh, but, you know, the odds of him being traded are very, very slim. The odds of him being traded from the Queens to the Bronx, I, I think, are almost nothing. So uh, that's not likely to occur. But one thing I would like to point out is it's been reported that the Yankees have no untouchables. They're willing to trade any of their prospects. From what I'm hearing, that only goes uh, uh, counts if we're talking about Syndergaard. They're willing to trade any prospect for Syndergaard, uh, not for some of the other play pitchers, who are very good pitchers on the board. But they happen to love Syndergaard. He's got two years to go. Uh, that's the guy that, that they most like to get. So uh, I do think the Mets would want an established player like Gleyber Torres. So uh, I don't know that that's going to happen. Uh, in fact, I'd say almost zero chance. Uh, Bauer uh, is the next guy on their list. That's their number two choice. Uh, the, the chances of him being traded are diminishing as the Indians draw closer to the Twins. Uh, but they're, they're listening, and uh, we'll see about that. But I, I think that's their number two guy. And 
uh, probably the, 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 the first guy with a realistic some chance to be traded to the Yankees. After that, they love Mad Bum. I think, uh, despite some early thoughts of analytics questions, uh, obviously big October pitcher. He's hot right now, and uh, I, it's another guy. I, I'm not sure he's getting traded now. I think the Giants have uh, really put on a magical run and played themselves back in it. Uh, Ray is another guy they like, and uh, another guy who may or may not be traded. So what may happen, and I think at this point, if you had to say a favorite to go to the Yankees, it might be Stroman because he's going to be traded. He's on a non-contender. He's on a team that's going to market him and try to trade him. And right now the Yankees in Houston look like uh, the two most logical landing spots for uh, Stroman. A couple minutes away from Billy Bean joining us, so let me end this segment. And I'm, I'm cheesing off most of America by keeping us all AL East just you know for this first segment but uh, with Boston double digits behind the Yankees right now and there's a lot of finger pointing in Boston as you know John it's like a freaking Dunkin Donuts everybody pointing <laughs> here 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 uh, but the, the, good. you know the starters through 100 games last year for the Red Sox had a 3.7 ERA this year through 100 games it's 4.8 doesn't it seem like that's the first place to point a finger? Uh, yeah. I mean, I I think you're right. I think that's one place. And the other place is they're not getting the same kind of years out of uh, their star everyday players. I mean, J.D. Martinez has been good. He hasn't been as spectacular as he was last year. Mookie Betts has been good. Has not been MVP caliber as he was last year. Uh, Benintendi has been average. He really has not been what you would have expected. Uh, maybe a little bit of a sophomore slump. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, you know, they're getting some diminishing returns. Obviously, the bullpen's an issue, too. That has not been good lately. Uh, early on, they were kind of getting by with what they had. But uh, they certainly have a lot of issues and a lot of questions. And right now, it's questionable whether they get in even as a wild card, whether it was the hangover or uh, just a regression to the mean or whatever it was. Uh, they do not look like a threat in the division at this moment. And I thought all along that, you know, they have so much talent, they could come back. It could be like the 78 Yankees. They could make a huge comeback. They're the world champion. But uh, right now I'm kind of thinking, uh, I'm pointing fingers and suggesting uh, their best hope is wild card. And uh, that's about it, I would say. Well, one of the teams they're competing with for that wild card, the Oakland Athletics. And Billy Bean is on deck to talk to us about the A's chances and the, the, the AL West overall, as a matter of fact. Billy Bean, who served as the A's GM, of course, from 98 to 2016, before becoming their executive vice president of baseball operations. Of course, is also a big league outfielder from 1984 to 89, then immortalized in both print form and movie form. But this isn't entertainment tonight. Billy, we want to talk about your ball club on a ferocious tear. Cautiously optimistic? Is that a decent way to put it for you right now? I think that's a term we all learned when we went to GM school. So, uh, but uh, yes, I think it's appropriate here. I think uh, the, I would put the word cautious in there because we still have some some concerns uh, about our pitching depth. Uh, the guys who, who we have right now have done a great job at going back to the off season. We kind of had to invent a starting rotation, and uh, and the bullpen has, which was one of our strengths last year, has been a little bit inconsistent and. Uh, when I say depth, we don't have a, uh, guys in either position that we've, uh, a lot of guys, we have some guys that we certainly could call up, but I, I think we could use some more depth or more options. Uh, and so, therefore, the term cautiously optimistic would, uh, would apply here. <laughs>
Very good. Billy, it's John Heyman here. Um, I just wanted to, you've gotten Homer Bailey, you've acquired him. Uh, you know, you've had some pitching injuries to deal with. Where do you stand right now with your rotation and your bullpen? I mean, your your team is playing great. Uh, you're in position to make the playoffs again and surprise a lot of us. But uh, what do you think the next move or two could be? Well, again, hopefully to address the, the pitching depth. I think ideally we would like to get, you know, a starter and at least one more reliever. Uh, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, started, it's, it's not a real uh, heavy market for starters right now. There's just not a lot of guys out there that sort of fit. Uh, for us, and uh, but certainly from a bullpen standpoint, we like to lead, at least add one. Uh, and again, one of the thing you know, one of the things that you know we knew coming in to the season that if we could kind of stay in contention until about the midway point, we felt good about how the second half would go with our pitching because we had guys like AJ Puck uh, and uh, Sean Benaya returning. And which is still the case, it's just that they've been a little uh, bit delayed, and it may be that we get those guys maybe in August, at the end of August. And the also thing that hurt us, too, at the beginning of the year was losing uh, Jesus Lazardo, probably our, one of our top pitching prospects who we anticipated being in the rotation this time. So, uh, again, the fact that we're here is a testament to, A, the, the players who, who are here doing well, our, our staff as well. But uh, ideally, because of the delay in those guys' return, I think we'd like to, again, we're going to hope to, at minimum, add uh, another reliever, maybe two, and in a perfect world, we get maybe at least one more starter. Billy, as we're recording this, it's funny, the Tampa Bay lineup just came across to me uh, as I'm putting it down in my scorebook, and and I'm noticing it's not Jason Kendall, but they got Travis Darno leading off, and and he's playing first base. I mean, that's like... Everything that the Tampa Bay, for example, would have never thought, you know, here's this guy they didn't even have in the organization, and he's playing a position he's not supposed to be playing, because sometimes necessity is the mother of invention, right? And, and I just seem to, to think that with you guys, that kind of thing, I mean, it's almost every year, if not every month, every week, you've got to do some sort of weird tweak like that. Does that energize you? Does that piss you off? How does that kind of stuff make you feel? Anything that Tampa does, I mean, they're a brilliant group of guys down there. So there's a reason, and there's an analytical reason as to why you're seeing that. I mean, I, you know, in fact, they'll be able, I'm sure they can explain it to you uh, as to why you know they're doing that. And if you look back in our history, if you really think about it, going back, I mean, I remember when we uh, we signed Scott Hatterberg and, and whispered in his ear that we we're going to move him to first base, and we didn't want him to tell anybody <laughs> because we didn't want people to think that he was replacing Jason Jambi and. And the reason we did it was, you know, there's a lot of information we had that, uh, you know, that he was a very, very good hitter, was a very poor catcher at the time, and that he was going to be a good enough offensive player at the position. Again, that was it was analytically driven. So, uh, but as far as reinventing ourselves, uh, and I, you know, I would, I'm sure Tampa feels the same way. In some sense, it, you know, uh, it, it does force the creativity because we have so much player churn here. Um, because of the the revenues uh, we bring in as does Tampa Bay. Uh, but I also think it, it, it allows for a very creative environment and allowed us just maybe to take some chances and do some things that uh, maybe larger market teams or higher revenue teams wouldn't, wouldn't be able to do. Yeah, Billy, you mentioned uh, they're brilliant in Tampa, and they certainly are. A lot of these teams that are brilliant just kind of copied what you did, uh, as was outlined in the great book Moneyball. Uh, I want to ask you how... 
I'm sure you thought the book was pretty good, but how would you review the book, the movie, and did you have any regrets at all uh, about giving away any any secrets? Do you think people picked up on it, or were you able to? Uh, it seems like you've you've uh, were able to adjust. Uh, you know, pitchers and and hitters always have to adjust, and it seems like you have adjusted and found some new secrets. Well, you know, it's, uh, first of all, zero regrets to me. I mean, to, you know, Mike Lewis is arguably uh, even, you know, the impact he's had in the nonfiction world uh, even since that book. I mean, he's basically, with every one of his books, has almost changed industries. So I guess it's an honor to, you know, for myself and, mm-hmm. and the organization to be profiled. And now as far as giving up any secrets, so the, the short answer, no regrets because it, my life has changed in, in great ways because of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, as far as giving away secrets, the interesting thing was was that all the stuff that was in the book was really, it, this was all sort of public information anyways. Uh, and, and, you know, we make no bones about it. What was in the book was we were really just taking the ideas of a Bill James and a Pete Palmer, some of the sort of baseball academics who for years thought that there were some inefic- inefficiencies in the game and that we were valuing some of the, you know, some of the wrong skills and so uh, it was nothing we invented you know what we did was we just we just executed on again the ideas of other people now uh, what i do think it did was i do think it accelerated to some extent the analytics revolution also what accelerated too was the uh the fact that you know not only baseball teams but businesses in general had access to a lot more data but uh, but once the book came out, all of us, I say we were, and I know other teams at that point too, were creating their own proprietary analytics, and uh, and that and again we all that was stuff that we didn't have to give away, and you know and there's other teams that did that, and, and you're here now, and I think you just about every baseball team has their own proprietary stuff. So uh, so again, I didn't feel like we gave away any secrets because it was all public. At some point, people were going to figure out and do it anyways. It just again we just brought the ideas of Bill James and put them into play and then once the book came out we were on to again creating our own stuff and and, uh you know we were able to keep that secret for a while and just like other organizations (laughs) and and, and again that's what most teams are doing now but Mm -hmm. no regrets certainly it's it's been from my standpoint it's it's changed my life we got a couple more minutes with billy bean and you're in houston your team is in houston right now uh, and as we record this six back in the loss column it's not like it's 16 so you look at Houston, and are they vulnerable in any way? Or speaking of analytics, I mean, here's this team that uh, has figured out a way to make them work uh, for them as well. But uh, they bring up a lot of cool young players. You've done the same thing. Loriano just got named Player of the Week. He's got the highest July batting average going in the major leagues. But uh, what about Houston? What, what impresses you, and are they vulnerable in any way? It was not, you know, you could make the argument if, uh, that, you know, there's probably two teams I think everybody, you know, uh, and again, I've got to, uh, nothing on anybody else, but I mean, the Dodgers and the Houston, I think most people going into the season, and I think even during the season, are probably the top two teams in baseball. And again, there's the Yankees or a few other teams are making an argument for that as well. But, and you talk about intelligence. I think one of the things that Houston has done with the analytics that they've revolutionized is they've really applied it to player development. And done a great job in, 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 you know, when you look at a guy like Verlander too, they use the analytics to take a great, a great pitcher with a great career and, and, and make him even greater if that's possible. And, and again, that's a credit to, to Jeff and his entire staff. But going to the team, they're, listen, they're, you know, we've known, we knew probably a year or two before they arrived that they were going to be a force in our division for a long, long time. And they are still clearly the, the class of our decision. 
or division, excuse me, and uh, probably will be for a, a long, long time. So I think the road to the division title is going to go through Houston for a few more years, and that's an earned right that, that they put a lot, of, they put some tough years into creating that. And I still think that's the case now. So listen, the fact that we're at six, six and a half now, if you, you know, if you looked at the standings back in May, uh, you'd have thought we were crazy uh, if we thought we were, or we thought we were going to be that close because it was a lot bigger then. And so we still got some time, but it's, it's, it's going to be a big challenge because they're a great team, very talented with a, with a great manager and a great front office over there as well. You, you say it's a big challenge, Billy. And one thing I'll say about your team, incredible second halves. And, you know, I didn't, again, once again, I'm going to look bad because I didn't pick you guys to make the playoffs. But once I saw you were around 500, a little over 500, uh, halfway through the year, I said, you know what, this team is going to make it once again. Uh, when I was asked, and you know, I know you guys have uh, revolutionized the analytics and taken advantage of market inefficiencies. But is there some re- explanation as to why you guys have been so good in the second half? Is there something that you're doing uh, that just allows your team to be even better? Uh, in the second half as opposed to the first? You know, it's, it's why I learned in my second year, John, that in, in this game, if you can, especially now with the wild card, the second wild card, you know, added and stuff, you've got, when you look at uh, the season, what we really want to do is just, if we can sort of hang in there and you get to the midway point, what ends up happening around the midway point is that there's a number of teams that just sort of say, hey, you know, we're not in it. We're going to fold our cards and we're out. And just by virtue of kind of just staying in the game, if you again, if you're around 500 around this time of year, there's a lot of those teams that are going in a different direction that you actually get to play in the second half. And so, uh, just by staying in the in the in the game, so to speak, uh, we'll give you a few more wins. And we sort of, and I found that out in my second year. I think in '99 uh, we were, uh, I think 43 and 44, right, right right before the deadline. And it was a year we actually traded Kenny Rogers. And actually turned it into, uh, we were able to keep the cash. We traded for uh, traded for a bunch of players: Omar Olivares, Kevin Apier, and you know, Israel Housing came that year. And from that point on, we ended up. I think we finished the season with 87 wins. And if somebody would have thought, you know, back in July of that year that we could, you know, win 87 games, they would have thought we were crazy. And I sort of realized that. Listen, we just what we did was we sort of willed ourselves to being contenders and just didn't some sense didn't give up from a front office standpoint and from a playing standpoint realizing that again that some of the people on your schedule in the second half may be going in a rebuilding or a younger direction and there's a lot of wins out there so uh, I think that's contributed to some of our second half so I think the other thing too is we've always had a unique environment here in Oakland it's uh it's been you know uh it, it goes back to even when Jason Jami Hudson Moldrezito and that, those eras is that we've always been able to you know, develop a pretty good clubhouse culture here. I think a lot of that has to do with the people who are managing the club. Uh, in our case, you know, Bob Melvin is a guy that players like playing for. It's not a real strict environment. Guys are allowed to be themselves, and I think that uh, that lends itself to getting guys getting on runs and a lot of confidence and a lot of people are going to kill me for saying this, but uh, a lot of team chemistry. Uh, so <laughs> and, and that's happened not just with this team, but with some of the other teams in the past. And part of it, I think, is the environment that we create. Uh, don't worry, that word is never used. Billy, thank you so much, buddy. Continued success. Go get him. We'll, we'll talk to you again soon. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Yeah, Billy. as well, guys. Uh, thanks again. All right, very cool. Billy Bean has spent that much time with us. Big time baseball. Let's shift over and talk a little Washington Nationals because they're relevant again. Let us shift over to the National League East. We're joined by Mark Zuckerman, who covers the Washington Nationals for Masson. You can follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Zuckerman. 
that's convenient. Uh, long way from <laughs> 19 and 31 for your guys, Mark. They were dead as a light post around Memorial Day. Now here they are hitting, they're pitching, they're not stinking it up in relief. Can they keep this going? Well, they're trying. I mean, they've dug themselves into such a hole that they kind of have to keep this up now uh, the rest of the way. If they play 600 ball the rest of the season, they'd get to 91 wins, and that's going to get them at least into a wild card. So that, given where they were two months ago, that's pretty remarkable that they put themselves uh, in that position. But the schedule is getting a lot tougher, as we just saw against the Braves. They've still got the Dodgers and the Braves coming up at home in the next week. Uh, Max Scherzer is dealing with an injury. Ryan Zimmerman got hurt again last night, and the bullpen is still uh, you know, a question mark on a day-to-day basis. So they're far from in the clear at this point, but um, the fact they have gotten themselves back to this spot uh, is testament to just you know how talented they are and how they really stuck together uh, when things could have fallen apart a couple months ago. Hey, Mark, John Heyman here. You, you mentioned the bullpen, and it's still got an ERA close to six, so it's uh, remarkable that they are uh, really uh, in, in the playoff hunt with that kind of a bullpen. I know it's been a little bit better at times lately. Where, where do you think they go from here with that pen? I know that they're also they're, they're close. Well, they won't say what their uh, current payroll is. They're close to that $210 million. We all think they are because they were over last year, and by all rights, you'd think they're around 200 to $205 million. Uh, do they have the flexibility uh, to add some pieces? Uh, what are you hearing uh, along those ways? Yeah, that's the tricky part of this all. They clearly need to upgrade here in the next week or so uh, in their bullpen. The problem, uh, they are, whatever the exact number is, they are close to the luxury tax. And Mike Rizzo, uh, we asked him about it yesterday. He flat out said again, we're not going over the tax for a third straight year. So that's not a lot of room to work with. On top of that, they've had this long-standing policy for several years now of not trading away top prospects. So if you're not going to take on money and you're not going to give up top prospects, uh, that's limiting your options of what you can do. And on top of all that, you know, so many teams are now kind of in the in that fringes of the race, especially in the National League. There's only so many teams willing to sell at this point. So that, that limits the market as well. Um, so this is a tricky challenge for Rizzo. He's done this almost every summer uh, the last four or five years. He's gone out especially and gotten bullpen pieces, and most of them have worked out well. But this is going to be a particularly tough challenge. I guess the good news of it is they don't need a closer. They have that in Sean Doolittle, um, but they do need somebody they can consistently rely on to get the ball to Doolittle. Fernando Rodney's done a nice job for a 42-year-old, but if they're counting on that uh, to be the guy for them the rest of the way, I think that's a big ask. Uh, for someone at, at, at his age, to, um, you know, to, to consistently get you through the eighth inning. Are, are you happy, Mark, as we talked to Mark Zuckerman with Masson about the Nationals, that Anthony Rendon seems like finally, nationally, for the Nationals, is getting some acclaim. He had never been an all-star before. Now there's all this talk that he's the primo free agent coming up on the market. You've seen enough of him to know he is an incredible player, but it almost seems like uh, the rest of the world is like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I didn't know that about Rendon. Yeah, I've been writing about him for years since he, since he debuted, and I've, you know, we've all around here have known just how good he is. You know, Maybe it was because he played in Bryce Harper's shadow for a long time. They had Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, uh, you know, a lot of bigger names. And, and Anthony is not an attention seeker. He really tries to avoid it, um, and that's fine. That's who he is. It's going to be hard for him to avoid the attention if he gets the free agency this winter. 
The Nats love him. They would love to resign him. There have been talks on and off with Scott Boris about this. So far, nothing has come through. Uh, it, it, that also kind of leaves him in a little bit of a tough spot right now where, you know, a few months ago when it looked like they were out of it and were not going to be in the thick of a race, there were going to be serious questions about whether they would have to try to trade him now by July 31st, the opposite of what they did with Harper last year. Now, obviously, they can't do that. He's a big part of this. He's going to try to help them win this year. But are they going to risk two years in a row losing a premier free agent and not getting anything in return for it? It's a tough spot to be in. Um, but whatever number they've put out so far is not enough for Rendon and Boris. I just have a hard time, just knowing Anthony, I have a hard time believing that he's going to embrace the idea of free agency and everything involved in that. And after seeing what Bryce and Machado and everybody else went through last winter, if I'm Anthony Rendon, I want no part of that. Um, at the same time, he wants a fair deal, and, and at least in his mind, the Nats haven't offered that yet. Yeah, I mean, you know Anthony very well, and he has seemed to stay out of the spotlight and the limelight, and uh, that makes sense that he really wouldn't embrace free agency as Harper did. Let's not forget, though, that while it was a trying period, he, Harper did end up with $330 million, so it ended up okay for him. Uh, I want to ask you about some more uh, key people with the Nationals, and this may seem like a weird question when the team looks like it could be en route to a, another playoff spot, and they've four times they've been 95 wins or more uh, with Mike Rizzo, and uh, he's done a terrific job from where I sit, but uh, you know they've had a rotating uh, system of managers and, uh, you know, there, there was earlier talk about uh, Davey Martinez's job, and uh, you hear of a little bit of tension, maybe, uh, the fact that they haven't gotten past the first round of the playoffs. Uh, where do you think these guys stand, and, and what do they need to do to impress people and get job, keep their job in Davey's case and get an extension in, in Mike's case? Well, we'll start with Davey. And, and look, yeah, there was plenty of heat on him back in May as this thing uh, wasn't looking so good and, and coming apart. But what I also saw with my own eyes and what I heard from everyone else around the clubhouse was that they felt like it was not fair to judge him on this, that look at the roster that he was given, number one, look at the injuries they had dealt with, look at the bullpen they, uh, that he was given, and the fact that they really were playing hard. You know, they weren't winning games, but they were in every game right down to the end, and they thought that was a testament Davy and I didn't see any kind of clubhouse discord. Um, there were points there where you could have seen guys pointing fingers at each other, certainly at the bullpen, and it didn't happen. And I really do believe a big reason that they have been able to turn it around is that Davy kept that clubhouse together. Um, just look down the road to a couple other NL East teams in Philadelphia and New York for kind of comparable situations when they faced adversity. You've seen a very different narrative come out of those clubhouses and and questions about their leadership. And so um, is Davey the best X's and O's manager? Maybe not. There's still some moves he makes that, that you kind of scratch your head. But I, I don't think anybody can question how well-liked and respected he is uh, within the clubhouse and within the organization. Um, you know, he's still got to get them over the hump. But they've gone through so many managers. They've never had one last more than two and a half years. Um one of these days, they've got to find the guy and stick with them and give them a chance to have some consistency and continuity. You know, yes. Now, in Rizzo's case, he has taken more heat this year than he has in the past. Uh, he was responsible for assembling this bullpen that we've been talking about. Um, you know, He also went and, and aggressively went and got Patrick Corbin, 
and outbid the Yankees and the Phillies. That worked out great. Uh, Kurt Suzuki's been a good pickup. Brian Dozier's been a good pickup for them. He refused to trade Soto and Robles, and that's worked out really well for them. So, I mean, there's still, in my mind, there's nobody more responsible for the Nationals uh, over the last decade, what they've become, you know, a consistent winner and contender every year. Mike Rizzo is more responsible than anybody else. So I don't think he's under that kind of pressure, but you're right. Um, the way the Lerner family operates, they just don't give a lot of long-term security to people in the GM and manager's office, uh, and so it kind of always leaves these questions hanging out there. And, um, you know, uh, a little deeper run in October, maybe that will help solve that problem. Mark Zuckerman, thank you so much, buddy, and we will catch up with you again. Appreciate all the insight. You guys have a good one. Final Thanks, segment Mark. coming up. We will wrap things up by breaking down the latest in trade insight across Major League Baseball with John. We'll go around the diamond in just a second. Heyman always gets us the very latest information as we creep towards the trade deadline, which remembers July 31st this year. This is a really good time to uh, review this podcast, and I'm quoting now, Awesome that Heyman has his own podcast away from WFAN work. Let's see him dive deep and provide interesting content. Always been a huge fan of John and his way of presenting baseball storylines in a way that caters to both sabermetrician types and the average fan. John, I was impressed your parents know how to subscribe to podcasts. That's, that's very cool. Wow, that shocked me. I can't believe there's somebody out there after reading my tweets. I I... <laughs> oh, you've been, you've, been, nice. you've been buried on some of your tweets the last two two weeks. Don't oh, get my me started. Two weeks, last well, uh, ten years. Your entire, since your Twitter uh, <laughs> life has been born. Yes, I agree with that. But specifically now, here's a chance to wipe the slate clean. You're not going to cheese anybody off, I don't think, by suggesting that, oh, for example... Uh, the Giants have some big decisions to make here. And as you and I record this, they've won 14 out of 17, two and a half out of a wild card. This is not what they thought would happen. Everybody figured out oh, they're just going to tear the whole thing down. Are they still going to tear the whole thing down? Mad bum, all the relievers, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, uh, at this point, I would say that they probably are not a seller. Uh, you're right. I thought it was 90% or more that Mad Bum would go and that all those relievers would go, Will Smith and... Uh, Dyson and even Melanson, it's a long list of good relievers that they have on that team that certainly have value. Watson, at this point, I think that they're going to hold, and it would just be very difficult for them to go into that clubhouse and after being on this magical winning streak and tell these players that we're trading Mad Bum and he's gone and this is Bruce Bochy's last year and we're not giving it a run. Uh, right now, they're a playoff contender, uh, shocking as that may be. Give Bochy credit. Give them credit for picking up some interesting pieces. But uh, that's where they stand now. Uh, in the long run, maybe that's a negative. Maybe that doesn't work out for them. But uh, for now, we give them credit. And I think Mad Bum is likely to stay uh, as of today. And I know all this stuff is timing. But look, we thought the Rangers would be buyers. Now it looks like they're sellers. We thought the Angels would be sellers. Now maybe they're buying. The Rockies look like they'll be selling. We thought they'd be buying. Uh, Tampa Bay and Chicago, uh, the Cubs, that is. They'd both like to get a, another right-hand hitter, uh, probably a reliever. So is this just keeps spinning around here? Uh, who else are we looking at? I mean, a, a Mike Miner, a Lance Lynn from Texas, are they going somewhere? Are they staying? Or what else are we needing to unearth? Yeah, I mean, Texas has a tough call. I, Mike Miner's got a year to go. At this point, uh, I would say more likely than not, he'll stay with Texas and uh, not be traded. Uh, they've got a new ballpark next year. It's another consideration. Um, you know, I think they're on the fringes of the race only because that AL wild card 
uh, it's so tough right now, and uh, that makes me think that uh, they they will be looking seriously at uh, trading Mike Miner and and or Lance Lynn. But uh, you know, it, it's still difficult to do that when you've got a year to go. In Lynn's case, you've got two years to go. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's likely that either one of them gets traded. Are the Mets officially in sell mode? And if so, who's going? Yes, they are a seller at this point. We can definitely say that. Uh, that became clear with the unfortunate three out of four losses in San Francisco where they outscored the Giants 15 to 11. Uh, you know, Noah Syndergaard is the guy that everybody wants, but I, I don't believe that they will trade him, at least not now. Uh, they can take him into the offseason, think two years to go with him. Uh, the Yankees, the Padres, many other teams. In fact, he's the top guy on the Yankee list. Uh, so uh, they will get some big offers for Noah Syndergaard. My belief is that uh, a lot of people blanched when I said the Tigers look for a, a young, uh, established major league star for Matt Boyd. Uh, for Noah Syndergaard, there's no question that's what the Mets would like to get. You know, if they talk to the Padres, at one point they were looking for Tatis Jr. That's not happening, obviously. Uh, with the Yankees, uh, you've got to figure they're going to be looking at Glaber. Torres as the guy that they want. So uh, they they are probably very reluctant to trade him across tra- town anyway. There have been many deals certainly involving big stars. So I think that would be a shocker if they traded Noah Syndergaard to the Yankees. And I think it would be a shocker if they traded him at all. Wheeler just had a bullpen. They say he said he came out of it fine. They're hoping he gets a start uh, before uh, the deadline and that he might have some trade value. He's certainly very talented. It's possible someone's interested, but I think people are going to be a little bit leery about the fact he missed uh, 10 days or so with that shoulder issue, and I think it's not going to be easy to get what they'd like to get for Wheeler. I think Vargas it was a rental, and they're not going to get a ton for, although he's had a nice year, but he's a back-end starter. I do think that uh, he will be the guy traded, and at this point I'm saying Wheeler not likely and uh, Noah very unlikely. And to wrap with the Mets, I know you've told me Mickey Calloway is safe at least for a little bit, but if not Joe Girardi, and I don't think it would ever be Buck Showalter, who? Who would be the next manager of the Mets? Yeah. From what I understand now, uh, Mickey Calloway is safe for the year. They're not going to do the interim route. He will be the manager of the Mets for the year. Uh, one name I've been hearing now, and uh, they don't want to talk about replacements because Mickey is the guy at this point, but one name I've been hearing is Robin Ventura. And uh, people will recall that uh, he had a very nice tenure with the Mets, also played for the Yankees, also has major league managing experience. So uh, I think he would definitely be in the mix if he wants to do it. That was the question before he went to the White Sox. Does he want to manage? Uh, and I do think that uh, uh, given the chance to manage the Mets, I think he probably would be interested. We'll, we, we may find out, but I think it'll be after the year because uh, Mickey, as I said, safe for the year. Right, we always seem to either begin or end with the Mets. This time it'll be we end with the Mets. And next week, obviously, with the trade deadline being right up against uh, uh, everything, when we do our next podcast, uh, we're going to give you a lot more time than, than eight minutes here, John, to, uh, to give us the latest. But appreciate you very much, buddy. Appreciate Billy Bean and Mark Zuckerman, who joined the podcast as well. If you haven't subscribed yet, we really would love you to do that. Feel free to give us a nice rating on there, Uber style, if you'd like. And uh, just tell your friends, continue to pollinate this thing for us. It's called Big Time Baseball. He's John Heyman. I'm Josh Lewin. and appreciate you, as always. And a week from now, we'll do this again. This has been a presentation of Radio.com Sports. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.